Good morning. I'm excited this morning to uh, start a new series that we're going to go through over the summer on the fruit of the Spirit. So we just wrapped up our series on 1 Timothy talking about the life of the church, the order of the church. Uh, but now we're going to dive deeper into what it means for us to be a church together. What does it mean not just to cultivate fruit in our lives individually, but what does it mean for a body of believers? We have to remember that the New Testament was written to churches. It was written to collections of Christians gathered together, and that's how we should receive it as well. So the text that we're going to be spending time in is Galatians chapter 5. We're going to look at verses 16 to 26. And uh, if you've never read the book of Galatians, it's a very direct, straightforward, powerful letter by the Apostle Paul. And he's dealing with a church that's caught up in a bunch of divisions. There's different factions in the church. There are different people uh, teaching false doctrines. There's all kinds of controversy. And Paul is trying to unify the church around the truth. And one of the things that he brings up is, we're a church, we're supposed to be bearing fruit, the fruit of the Spirit. This is basic Christianity. And I think this message is very relevant today. It's, you know, we're, it's popular, we, we want to know, okay, what does the church do uh, in our rapidly changing culture? What, what should the church do in response to uh, the divisive political age we're in, or what should the church do in response to issues of race and gender and sexuality? What do we do? And I think those are important questions, but before that, we have to ask, who are we supposed to be? What is a Christian supposed to be? And this series is about cutting through all the noise and getting right back to the basics. What is the fruit that Christians are supposed to bear in their lives as individuals and in their lives as a church. So read along with me as we look at Galatians chapter 5, 16 to 26. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit... Let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Let's pray for our time together. 
Our Father, we know that you have given us your word to be a light and a lamp, to give us an understanding of your character and what you ask of us. So we ask that you'd open up our minds and our hearts to receive the word, that you would strengthen us by your spirit to greater faith and to walk in obedience to your word. And we trust in your grace for us, that you love sinners, and that your grace overflows over our sin. Take this word and implant it deep into our hearts. And let it be transformative. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this is God's vision for Christians. We are to be a people marked by love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. But notice Paul recognizes that you don't automatically become this type of community, or you don't automatically become this type of person, because he gives a command. If you want this to happen, you need to do something. You need to walk by the Spirit. You need to walk by the Spirit. But the phrase, walk by the Spirit, you know, it kind of sounds mystical and airy, like if we're all just walking by the Spirit, our eyes roll in the back of our heads, and we're just like, oh, bless you, brother, you know, we're kind of, we, we, we kind of over-spiritualize this idea. And that's because we assume, and I think it's, this is part of our cultural environment in, in the wider culture, we assume that authenticity is spontaneity. Or we assume that spirituality is whatever spontaneous. I remember a friend, he was at this prayer retreat, and he felt strongly impressioned to turn to Matthew 29. And as he did that, he realized Matthew only has 28 chapters. <laughs> so, and certainly God can work in sudden emotional experiences. He can certainly work in spontaneous and powerful ways. We see that through Scripture. But that's not the ordinary way that God works. And that's not the way that Paul is emphasizing here in Galatians chapter 5. Walking by the Spirit for Paul is about the daily, ordinary, and gradual process of moral transformation by the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's not a force. The Holy Spirit is a person. He indwells us as the third member of the Trinity. And that indwelling gives us a new power source to live our daily lives in a different way. This is something we choose to do, not something that merely happens to us. And again, that's why this is a command. So how do we walk by the Spirit? It's very practical. There's three things that I think we see in this verse. First, if you want to walk by the Spirit, you have to recognize the battle. You have to recognize the battle. Second, to walk by the Spirit is to crucify the flesh. And finally, to walk by the Spirit is to fight for unity. Recognize the battle, crucify the flesh, fight for unity. Let's look at recognizing the battle. Paul begins, and he does this a lot whenever he gives commands. When God commands us to walk by the Spirit, we're also given a promise. Notice this. He says, if you walk by the Spirit, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. So there's a promise attached to this. And this tells us two very important truths. First, that there is an internal battle within every Christian 
between the flesh and the spirit. There's a battle raging inside of us. And second, this battle takes place at the level of our desires, our allegiances, our most sacredly held values. Now, when Paul uses the word flesh, I don't want you to think about the physical body. God created our bodies. He created them good. He created all of creation to be good. The flesh is a reference to our sinful desires. It's a flesh to our fallen desires. So to walk by the Spirit is at the same time to walk away from sin. So don't think about, you know, invisible, immaterial versus body material. Think source in the Spirit and source in your sinful nature. Think two engines that are driving your actions and your desires. And this is where the Holy Spirit comes in. So these desires are opposed to each other. The new desires that the Holy Spirit gives you when you become a Christian, and then the old desires that remain in you, and they're at war with each other in your life. And Paul says, if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. What does he mean by that? Well, to be led by the Spirit and to walk by the Spirit are different ways of describing the same reality. And that's this reality. The Spirit empowers us to work out our faith through love. That's why Paul says earlier in Galatians 5.14, the whole law, the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then he says elsewhere in in Galatians, he says it's not about circumcision or uncircumcision. That was the big controversy in the Galatian churches, whether Christians needed to be circumcised in order to be saved. And he says it's not about circumcision or uncircumcision. What matters is faith working through love. The expression of your faith in Christ manifested in your love for one another. That's what matters. And that is only possible if you have the Holy Spirit as the engine empowering that love. So you are now a community being led by the Spirit to fulfill the whole law to love one another. So this is not, now that we have the Spirit, we don't need the law. But now that we have the Spirit, we can do the law. We can do and fulfill the goal of the law, which is love of God and love of neighbor. So God's redemption, God's salvation is not about removing the law or changing it, but internalizing it. I will write my law on your hearts. That's what it means to no longer be under the law. It's no longer a condemning force, and it's no longer a force that provokes more sin, which is, if you look at Romans 7, that's one of the strange things. The person who does not have the Holy Spirit encounters the law of God, and it actually, not only does it condemn them, but it provokes them to sin even more. But when you're a Christian and you're given this new engine of desires, you actually want to fulfill the law. You actually want to do the law. The law is no longer condemning, it's correcting and guiding and leading you into a life that honors God and loves your neighbor. So to be a Christian is to have God's law written on your hearts. And that's why none of us sin anymore. That's that's sadly not the case. Remember, Paul is writing this to Christians. He is reminding Christians to walk by the Spirit. He is warning Christians about the works of the flesh. What does that assume? That we're going to sin. 
right? This is a battle within Christians. This is why the Bible describes Christians as both saved and being saved, right? When it comes to our standing before God, we're saved. Our salvation is secure by faith in Christ alone, through his grace alone, right? God counts us perfectly righteous apart from our works. So, that, so we're saved by the condemnation of God, saved from having to earn our salvation. But when it comes to the actual transformation of our character, the full redemption of who we are, that's still a work in progress. We are not yet what we will be. And so there's a sense in which we're still being saved, we're still being transformed, we're still being brought to what we will one day look like. And that process of change is very messy. That battle between the, the flesh and the spirit is a very difficult battle. John Piper once described the process of Christian maturity as a, as a tadpole becoming a frog. It's a strange, awkward process with a lot of weird in-between stages. One leg pops out, the tail kind of shrinks, one eyeball bulges out, the other one's smaller, and there's all these in-between stages. And I think that's a great illustration because we're all just a bunch of tadpoles becoming frogs, and some of us We've got two arms and our, you know, our legs are weird and we're all just misshapen and we're all in different stages of that transformation and we will never be fully formed until the Lord returns. So that's the reality. It's just a bunch of mutant frog, tadpole hybrids. And part of walking by the Spirit is recognizing that reality in ourselves and in each other. We're all different places. And we're all, we all look really weird. We have to embrace that. And we're only going to give the amount of grace to others that we believe we need for ourselves. We might be crushing tadpoles in our Bible studies, community groups, or homes by expecting them to be frogs. We might be proud thinking that we are fully formed frogs and we're not. And you might find yourself going, why doesn't this person just learn to blank? Like, why is it taking so long for them to learn blank? Well, it's interesting. Why is it taking you so long to learn patience or humility? Right? This is why Paul warns us, don't bite and devour one another. He says it earlier in Galatians. If you bite and devour one another, what's going to happen? You're going to consume one another. It's this idea of the body of Christ cannibalizing itself instead of serving one another. And so that's the question. If this is true, that every Christian has that battle between the flesh and the spirit, and it is a real and present and daily battle, do we have grace for others in the midst of that battle? Are we in danger of biting and consuming one another? But grace for others is not about a passive enabling of sin. I think this is, when you hear that, you get, and you're just like, okay, but I get that grace, but like, we can't just, like, not say anything, right? Well, no, of course. I mean, Paul's, again, Paul's about to lay some heavy truths on us. So for Paul, giving grace to others is not enabling sin. It's not speaking forthrightly and directly about ways that we need to repent. Paul loves the church, and because he loves the church, he warns her about sin, and he calls her to crucify sin. So that's the second thing. If you want to walk by the Spirit, you can't just recognize the battle. You've also got to crucify the flesh, 524, and the Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. That's what marks a Christian, this activity of crucifying the flesh. 
Now, Paul identifies exactly what he means by the desires of the flesh, or the works of the flesh. And he uses the phrase works to describe actions that flow from our natural sinful state. Now, you'll see that contrast. Fruit comes by grace. It's not by our nature. The godly virtues come by grace. But the sinful ones, that's all us. We came up with that. That's our deal, right? They are the works of the flesh, the natural outworking of our sinful nature. Left to our devices, apart from grace, we're going to do these things, right? Nobody ever tries to grow weeds. You just let, you just let your lawn go. You just let your garden go, and they'll grow by themselves. That's how sin is. If you just do nothing, sin is going to grow in your life. It's our natural bent. And then Paul says, these works of the flesh are evident. They're common sense. You don't need to do a Greek word study and read 5,000 books about it. they're, They're very plain. Now, they may not be plain to you, the ones that you're committing, but they're probably clear to your spouse, to your kids, to your friends, to the people who hang around you. They are evident. But self-deception is such a big part of identifying sin or our lack of ability to identify sin. And, and I want you to think about this. Oftentimes, we love to mask our sin behind virtue. So we can see the sins of the culture, all the sexual confusion, the sexual morality, the craziness, and we go, man, they're taking sexual sin and they're saying it's virtuous and good. Right? They're masking as bravery, being who you are. And we can see that. We can see that deception. We can see calling vice virtue. But what about within the church? How do we brand sin as virtue? Where are we deceived? It's interesting that God names sin. He says, this is what I call it. So if you want to confess these sins, you've got to call it exactly what I call it. That's what confession means, to say the same thing. God says envy, but we often say, no, we're just fighting for fairness. God says divisive, but we say, oh, we are discerning. We are discerning. God says outbursts of anger, and we say conviction, passion. And we try to mask our vices as virtue. And to crucify the flesh means we call it what it is. I think, you know, what, what are the sins that stick out to you the most? It's like, Sexual morality, impurity, sensuality. We're like, we get why that would probably exclude you from the kingdom. But what about unrepentant envy? What about unrepentant anger, hostility? What about unrepentant strife and bitterness? That's something we have to repent of too. That is something that will characterize our lives. Do we even fear that those in unrepentant envy or jealousy or strife or anger won't inherit the kingdom? Now, Paul is directing us in a very specific way. He wants us to move upstream from our actions to to our motivations, to our desires, to where all those things are generated. Why do we commit sexual immorality? Well, that's our motivation, or our belief is that people are objects and pleasure is the highest goal. I have a right to pleasure. Why do we cling to idols or sorcery? New agey stuff. Why do we love that? Because we want to control everything. We want the world to fit and be molded in, our, in the shape of our desires. Why do we have outbursts of anger, strife, and rivalry? 
because we love forming our little teams and bashing the other people. We love the sense of superiority a tribal allegiance gives us. Why do we get drunk and throw wild parties and indulge in these pleasures? Because we feel entitled to a world of fantasy and escape rather than reality. And that's where the crucifixion of the flesh begins, at those desires upstream from the external actions that you're performing by identifying the sins we're actually committing and then repenting not only the actions but the motivations behind them. Now, when Paul says those who do these things won't inherit the kingdom of God, he's not saying, you know, basic lapses where Christians, we sin daily. Obviously, if he said that, he wouldn't be telling Christians to walk by the Spirit. He assumes Christians are going to sin. But this is a trajectory of life. This is a pattern of life. And it's assuming that the choices you make are shaping you day by day into a certain type of person. In The Great Divorce, one of C.S. Lewis's greatest... One of the things he points out in the story is that there are these ghosts that go from hell to heaven, and they get to tour heaven. And they get to hop out of the bus, and they wander around, and they look at heaven, and what's interesting is they hate it. They don't like it there because it's a world of love and selflessness and beauty and joy. And it's interesting... C.S. Lewis's allegory of hell is a bunch of perfect neighborhoods spread apart and empty. So everyone's completely isolated from one another, just completely encapsulated in a world of self. So those who won't inherit the kingdom are people whose characters formed in such a way that the kingdom of heaven is repulsive to them. And so part of what we're doing as we cultivate our desires, our godly desires, is we're preparing ourselves to be citizens of God's kingdom. We're preparing ourselves for the way the world will one day be. These are trajectories of life. What is the trajectory that you are on? And this is a painful process. I'm talking about crucifying the flesh. This is a, a process that, that involves difficulty and discipline and, and pain. But there's a temptation to over-romanticize this process. When you think about crucifying the flesh, maybe you imagine a personal four hours uninterrupted in the day, your journal's open, you've got the coffee there, Hillsong is playing in the background, and you're just ready to crucify some flesh, write down some things, and then what happens? A toddler cries, ruining your attempt to be sanctified before the Lord. Or maybe you have an idea of like, you just want to be in sackcloth and ashes. Lord, forgive me of my sin. And it's just this dramatic and this lighting, the lighting's perfect on you. And you're just like, ah, I'm so grieved over my sin. We can have these overdramatic views of this. But that's not reality. That can happen from moment to moment in our lives. But it shouldn't characterize our lives. And if this kind of theatric kind of crucifixion characterizes your life, you're kind of missing the point. And in many ways, when you hear a sermon about repent, 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 we can often repent of everything except for our self-absorption. We're just always thinking about ourselves, how well we're repenting, whether we feel sad enough, all these things. But again, crucifixion of the flesh happens in the daily, mundane, and ordinary course of our actual real lives. And God's curriculum for our sanctification often is not the same as ours. We want to learn math, and God wants to touch us up on our grammar, right? We want to untangle all the complicated 
webs in our heart, and God wants us to get over ourselves and change diapers. We're like, well, no, I don't want to be sanctified in that way. But all these interruptions in your life, all these things that you think get in the way of your spiritual life, that is your spiritual life. Those interruptions are God's curriculum for you daily to crucify the flesh, to walk in obedience. All the interruptions, don't look at them with disdain, but but receive them as God's gym, as God's training program for you in that moment. Don't over-spiritualize it. God is giving you a life day by day in the interruptions, in the trials, in the difficult things. He wants you to grow more than you do. So embrace those opportunities to die to self, those ordinary mundane opportunities. And killing weeds, what does killing weeds do? It gives space for fruit to grow, for a garden to blossom. So you recognize the battle, you crucify the flesh to do what? So you can make way for fruit to blossom. And again, that fruit is meant to create unity in the church. That's something we have to fight for. That's the final way we walk by the Spirit. We fight for unity. We fight for unity. Now, Paul introduces the fruit of the Spirit in contrast to the works of the flesh. So this is something that he's trying to say that that these works of the flesh, they're antisocial in nature. Notice that the emphasis isn't necessarily on the individual sins, but on how sins disrupt a culture in the church, how, how sins disrupt a fellowship of believers, enmity, strife, jealousy, biting each other, attacking each other, right? And so the fruit of the Spirit is in opposition to that. These are the things that promote the unity of the church, promote love amongst Christians. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And we're going to look at each one of these in the coming weeks, So I'm just going to give a brief overview about what Paul means by fruit of the Spirit. And I just want to make two observations to begin with. First, Paul speaks about the fruit, singular, of the Spirit, rather than the fruits of the Spirit. Right? You either have all of these characteristics growing in you, or you have none of them. N.T. Wright once remarked that all the fruits of the Spirit can be faked by healthy, young Christians, except for self-control. That's the tell. You might think someone has the joy of the Lord, but that's just their temperament, or things are just going well for them. You might think somebody has gentleness, but really, they're cowardly. They don't want to actually stand up for anything. You might think somebody has um, uh, love in their hearts, but really, they're doing it as a means of flattery. Right? All these fruits are to be integrated together. Not just about one-off actions you do. God is forming a certain type of person. God wants to shape us into the image of Christ. So it's fruit rather than fruits. And second, the fruit of the Spirit is about loving your neighbor. We, we briefly mentioned this before. We bear this fruit together. This fruit is to create unity. Now, Christian unity is not, you know, the feel good, everybody drinks a Coke and holds hands and we sing or something like that. This is serious business, right? Christian unity is about bearing with one another in love, Ephesians 4.2. It's about long-suffering with each other. 
It's about seeing the best in each other. It's about fighting for one another. It's about forgiving one another. It's about speaking the truth in love to one another. These are things that will characterize the kingdom of God. And they also reflect God's character. This is so key. I mean, God is self-giving in his love. And when we fulfill the law of God, we imitate that. We are self-giving in our love, especially as members of the body. That's why Paul says there is no law against the fruit of the Spirit. Why? Because if you're doing the fruit of the Spirit, you're doing what the law means. You're doing what what the law in itself could not do. It could not, it could only say this is what you need to be. It can't actually transform you from the inside out to want to do that. But the Spirit of God can do that. So there's no law against you because if you are cultivating the fruit of the Spirit, this will be true of your life. You will be fulfilling the intent of the law. And in fulfilling the intent of the law and loving one another, we display the gracious, loving character of God to the world. And this is why Paul stresses to keep in step with the Spirit. Keep in step with the Spirit. This is an ongoing process that we need to be reminded of and we need to continually practice. God is gentle with us. God is faithful to us. He loves us. And if we reflect that love, we are are witnessing to the world what it means to be the people of God. Imagine if you meet a really troubled young man, or you see a troubled young man on TV, and he commits some horrible crime, and it's tragic, and, and what's, what's one of the things that comes to your mind? What's his dad like? like? What kind of home was he raised in? And I think when Christians fail to manifest the fruit of the Spirit, you fear that the, the world watching is going, what's your dad like? What's your father like? Why are you like this? There's a lot at stake. Listen to Paul's warnings. He says, I don't want you to become, I don't want you to become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Are we being conceited? All right, that's the idea of glorying and emptiness. These vain things that the world cares about. Do we import that into the church? Do we treat one another that way? Do we have the same social hierarchy that the world does? Do we view people the way the world views people? Or is the way that we treat one another truly countercultural? Do we exalt in the vain, fleeting things of the world? Do we provoke one another? Are we seeking controversy? Are we just trying to call people out, cancel people, exalt ourselves? Do we have an overly critical spirit of one another? Do we envy one another? Is our criticism actually envy in disguise? Tearing people down because secretly we believe we deserve what they have. These are cancers within the church. Paul knows how terrible Christians can be. And Paul's not in some made-up world. Sometimes people are like, we just got to get back to the first century church. And I'm like, the first century church where two people were killed by the Holy Spirit for not giving enough money and and where a guy was, you know, sleeping with his stepmom, and people are suing each other, and the spiritual gifts are going crazy, and people are dividing into factions of Paul and Cephas and Apollo. That first century church, these are problems that have been plaguing us for thousands of years. Paul knows that. But Paul never lost hope. Listen to Galatians 6, 9. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap, if we do not give up. 
Paul's a realist. He gets it. But he's also a Christian. He gets it, right? Fruit takes time to blossom. Fruit takes time to grow. Christian growth is a gradual and often painful process. You can't plant a garden, water it one day, and then be angry the next day that a plant hasn't sprouted. It takes time. It takes disciplined and diligent effort over weeks and months before the fruit appears. People are more like gardens than light switches, right? You just turn it on and then they have all the fruit. No, people are gardens. They need to be tended, cultivated. You are like a garden. It takes time and cultivation. It's about the long haul, and it takes faith. That's why Paul says, look, in the right season, which is appointed by God, not us, we will reap. So don't give up. All right? You have something to do, but it's also all dependent upon God, just like a farmer. All right? You can't make those crops grow, but you do need to get up at 5 a.m. every morning and do what farmers need to do. So you need to have faith and trust that in the due season we will bear the fruit if we obey what God commands us to do. I've been tempted to wonder, you know, we have these weekly prayer services Tuesday at 6 p.m. here at the church. And sometimes I wonder, I'm like, man, is this doing anything? Like, we've been praying for four months. You know, and then sometimes I think maybe God's just like, yeah, how about four years? Right? What's your timeline? You don't get to determine the seasons. You need to have faith. We, we need to pray for each other. We need to encourage each other with the word, build each other up. We need to notice when we see fruit in other people. Sometimes it's really discouraging. You know, we look around and we're just like, I feel like I'm not changing at all. And it can be life-giving for someone to be like, you know, I've, I've noticed you've really grown in this area. That can be an incredible gift to people. We need to recapture a corporate vision of spiritual fruit, not just ourselves individually, but as a body of Christ, as a local church. And all of this is a byproduct of knowing God. All this fruit, you don't get fruit by just sitting there going, I want to bear fruit, right? It is a byproduct of knowing God. Or rather, as Paul says earlier in Galatians, being known by God, being loved by God. Christ is the vine and we're the branches, right? He's the source. Apart from him, we can do nothing. So by worshiping and knowing Christ, the byproduct of that is that fruit will be produced in our lives. All right, that's why our call to worship and our songs and everything that we do in this service, it's about exalting Christ. Not primarily about ways we need to change, necessarily. Because we know that it is in beholding the face of God and beholding Christ that we become like him. That's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3, right? As we behold God, we are being transformed. How though? One degree to another, gradually, bit by bit, strange in-between tadpole phase to the next. Gradual, but glorious transformation. Look around you. All these sinners, right? One day they're going to radiate with glory. One day they will be perfected. And so will you. Do you believe that? That's the vision 
that God sees in us, even though right now we're stumbling our way towards glory. He sees that in us. That's a lot to look forward to. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask that you would build our unity in the church, our unity in Christ. And we trust that you are working in us in a thousand ways that we may not even perceive. Lord, help us to not be conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Help us not to bite and devour one another, but cultivate godly fruit in our lives. Form us into a praying church, an encouraging church, a truthful church. A church that gives a foretaste, although imperfectly, of the kingdom to come. Father, we all have trials in our lives. We all have sins that nip at us and wage against the Spirit. And we confess those to you and we recognize that you have done away with the condemnation and that you've given us your spirit that we might be new creations. And we thank you for that and we ask that by that spirit you might help us to live holy and righteous lives. For the glory of Christ, amen.